This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Carol Wood, but it's as a, it's a member of the board, which I've sat on for um, something, I don't know, like 10 years or something now, that gives me enormous pleasure to have um, Terry Lanigan here um, this evening to talk about um, a curriculum for excellence and assessment. Terry, well, he was an English teacher and a head teacher and is chair of ADIS, which is the Association of Directors of Education for Scotland. And as part of that, he also sits on further committees related to that. His substantive post, as we like to call it in education, is the Executive Director of um, Educational Services for Western Bartonshire uh, Council. So we've invited Terry here um, this evening to give us a talk about um, curriculum for excellence and assessment and what the format is he will do that for about 40 minutes okay then there'll be we'll pause and then we'll open it up to questions um, from, from from to the audience I will start off with one or two questions just to get things going and how we manage the questions is it's a roving mic so um, I'll just stand up um, and help Terry by managing these questions and you just really indicate if you've got a question and you just wait for the mic to arrive and then you speak close to it. Introduce yourself and where you're from and then, and then your question. Okay. So that will run until the end of the session and with that, that will be, be the end. There is no book, I know it's a book festival, but sometimes with our speakers, it's, um, there is no book and there won't be a book this evening, so there won't be any signing. But I'm sure that um, Terry will be around for a little bit if you wanted to chat to him. So, ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce you to uh, Terry Lanigan, please? Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, it's a great pleasure and something of a surprise for me to be standing in front of you. Uh, Carol has said uh, there is no book. Uh, that is because, despite what it says on my badge, Terry Lanigan author, uh, I am not an author. I think it's remarkably democratic of the Edinburgh International Book Festival to invite people who simply read books to talk uh, at these events. And I have to say that since Carol phoned me to invite me to do this, I um, have, uh, I can't get out of my head the old Jimmy Durante song, I'll never forget the day I read a book. It was contagious, 70 pages, there were pictures here and there, so it wasn't hard to bear the day I read a book. Well, I, I have read more than one book, but I am not really uh, an author, so I was very flattered to be asked to come along uh, to speak at this auspicious festival. Um, flattered until I put the phone down and thought about the topic that I'd been asked to cover. Because let's be quite honest, assessment and curriculum for excellence is not exactly the sexiest subject uh, under the sun. So I had, I had to think about how I might approach it. And I realised that, that one possible approach was to look at my relationship with assessment through my own lifetime. Maybe a strange way to approach it, but that's really what I'm going to uh, going to look at today. And, and to, I won't come on to curriculum for excellence until towards the end of my talk, where I will try to show how assessment within curriculum for excellence differs from everything that has gone before it. I've been told that there are probably people in the audience tonight who are not from Scotland, so I will say a little bit in general about what curriculum for excellence is, because it's a misleading title. It's not really a curriculum. Uh, and I'll come on to that as well. So, when I thought about it, I thought back to my own primary school. 
and I, I enjoyed primary school. And I thought in particular to a Mrs. McDevitt, a large buxom lady, um, a popular teacher, although as teachers at that time were, were wont to do, she was prone to random acts of violence from time to time. Um, but her method of assessment, and I had her in primary three and primary four, was she sat us in the order that we came in the test. Some of you are nodding, you recognise this. Um, so a monthly test, and then you, they would, she would seat us, the, the best and brightest at the front right, to the poor guy at the back left. It was always a guy at the back left. And Billy Connolly talked about, about uh, this when he was talking about his, his famous sketch about singing Mary's Wedding. And he talked about the fact that he was in the third row, which he described as stupid but savable. <laughs> and um, so, and to be honest, even at the time, even at that young age, it seemed to me to be something of an abuse because the positions didn't change very much. And it must have been so disheartening to be in the end row. And you wonder what was going through someone. I've got very fond memories of Mrs. McDevitt. She was a good teacher in many respects. But what on earth did she think she was doing? Did she really think that this was a way of motivating people? However, her approach was not as unconventional as my primary seven teacher, Miss Johnson. <coughs> I've got a photograph of my primary class. This is the 60s, remember. And I've got a photograph of my primary class and I counted the number of kids in it. There were 48 pupils. Now I presume there were a few who were AF on that day. And so the class size was probably in excess of 50. So Miss Johnson, who was obviously feeling the burden of assessment, when it came to her 11 plus exam, I was a relatively bright pupil. She got me and a couple of others to mark the exam. <laughs> Now, I know that peer assessment is all the rage, <laughs> but that seems to me to be something of a, an abuse of that concept. Um, anyway, the <laughs> I moved on, of course, to, to secondary school. I was less happy at secondary school, to be quite honest. Um, but I had a first year, and first year I had an art teacher who had an interesting twist on the methods employed by uh, Miss McDevitt, Mrs. McDevitt. His name was Mr. McConaughey, and he had that sort of nasal twang that <laughs> Scottish male teachers of a certain age seem to have, and it seems particularly designed for the sarcastic put-down. <laughs> and Mr McConaughey, we called him Arty Farty, which we thought was uh, both original and, and daring, and of course it wasn't, it was cliched and puerile, but uh, his way of assessing us was the very first time he had us, we had done a, a drawing or a painting, and he lined us up, he told us to hold it like that, and he lined us up around the room in order, and he moved us about so that you ended up the top right round to Lanigan at the bottom, because I was useless at that. And he then, what he would then do is the second time that he, he was assessing something, he told us to go to the position we'd been in before, because he presumed there wouldn't be much change and so I, again, you know, would go to the, the, the bottom of the class. And this went on twice or three times. And eventually I thought, this guy doesn't even know me. He doesn't even recognise me. I'm going to sneak in in the middle and see if he notices. So I sne didn't, not too high up, you know, I didn't want to be silly about it. So I snuck in into the sort of middle, just below the, the, the middle of the class. 
And he just glanced up like this, and I remember his words to this day. He said, Lanigan, would you kindly assume your usual position? <laughs> and I had to go to the bottom of the class. Now, the interesting thing about Mr. McConaughey was that, again, he wasn't a bad teacher in some respects. In fact, he did something that was actually quite daring, but first-year art class. He was, a, he was a great fan of Picasso uh, and the Cubist, particularly Picasso during the Cubist period. And he tried to teach us about what Cubist art was about. And he did it by showing us perspective, or the, uh, paintings with a lack of perspective, pre-Renaissance. And he then showed us Renaissance art, which had perspective in it. And he was basically getting us to understand that a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional picture is a construct. It's, a, it's something, and, and it's a deal that's done between the artist and, uh, the, and the viewer. And you've got to learn to read a painting. And there's actually no reason why a two-dimensional piece of art shouldn't look at an object from several different angles. And that's basically what cubism is. And he has left me actually with a lifelong love of Picasso, and particularly Picasso during that period. But what is more important, the fact that I have that love or the fact that to this day, I believe there is no way I can learn to draw, because that's what he really taught me. And I think that's a powerful, a powerful lesson. And if a successful student like me remembers all these years on, more than 40 years on, remembers that little humiliation, what is it like for youngsters who consistently don't attain high levels and who are told at every turn that they are not good at something, that they have failed. And unfortunately, our assessment system has been constructed for so long on a model of failure. If I move on a bit to university days. University days, I, enjoy, I thoroughly enjoyed my university days. I did uh, English and history at uh, Glasgow University. And I do, however, remember, and I remember getting praise and I remember doing well, but the thing that I remember most vividly is an essay that I spent about three weeks of, the sum of a summer holiday doing on Shakespeare's problem plays. It was the longest piece of work I'd ever done to that point. I was going into my junior honours year. I handed it in and I didn't get it back for about three months. And when I did get it back, I can still remember the comment. Maybe this <laughs> says more about me than it does about the system. But it said something like, this is extremely tedious. And it said, if I had read the words some critics think one more time, I might have died. <laughs> Perhaps I have. And I remember, I remember the grade I got from it, for it. I got, a, they used Greek letters just to make you feel even more stupid. Um, the, I got a, a beta double minus stroke gamma double plus question mark. In other words, it's just about on a third class honours degree. I'm not quite sure it might scrape into a 2-2. Now, again, maybe it says more about me that I remember those comments, but I think so much of our assessment system in Scottish education has traditionally been based on that sort of model. I then became a student teacher, and I remember Another little variation on the, the, the McDevitt method. I remember sitting in a class when I took my third term in a school in Paisley and a teacher reading out the exam results, reading them out publicly. 
reading them out from the top to the bottom. And so that you ended up at the end of this thing, you could see there were two or three poor souls who were sinking gradually down into their chairs. I then became an English teacher myself and was faced with the challenge of assessment. And I've always found the language that surrounds assessment to be very revealing in Scottish education. I used to complain like all English teachers do about being snowed under with marking. Snowed under with marking. Now that is revealing language because I've never heard a, te a teacher say that they're snowed under with preparation or snowed under with teaching. It doesn't work that way. And what that suggests to me is that assessment is seen as somehow separate from teaching. It's a separate task. It's a task that you do to a child after you've done the teaching. And that is not useful, and I'll come back to that a little later. The language as well that surrounds, even in contractual terms, the language that surrounds assessment traditionally. In the teacher's contract, they have, uh, uh, they have time set aside for preparation and correction. I mean, correction. I mean, how patronising is that? I must correct you. You know, and it's got connotations of a house of correction. Almost connotations of some sort of sadomasochistic uh, activity, you might say. Maybe that's me again. Um, <laughs> but it, there is something very, uh, very patronising about it, I think. And, and it fits into a sort of red pen syndrome that, that some teachers have. And it also, I think, um, is revealing, I, I used to have arguments with maths teachers about this. When standard grade was introduced and you had the three levels, credit level, general level, foundation level, credit at the top, um, I used to get really annoyed with maths teachers who would talk about, he's not a credit pupil, you know, or he's a foundation pupil, or she's a foundation pupil. I think that's very unhelpful. That's, it's, a, it's a label which seems to, to not just to classify somebody, but to, to, to demean them almost by meaning that they, they, they fit into a certain thing, because nobody is, is at one level uh, all the time. Also, and I, I, I'm not claiming that I never did this myself, because I did, if you think yourself, I bet those of you that have got children or those of you who haven't got children, if you think back to your own school days, you will remember getting things back which said things like, good work, 7 out of 10. <coughs> or the traditional one, must try harder. Now, that is, what, does that, what does that teach you? It teaches you absolutely nothing. If you imagine, if you apply this to another situation, you will see just how stupid it is. If you imagine that you're learning to drive, and at the end of a lesson, your instructor says, that was good, I'd give you 7 out of 10 for that. <laughs> what use is that? Or if somebody's trying to teach you, uh, say you go to a golf pro and try to get your swing corrected, and say, well, OK, but try harder next time. You know, assessment should be about helping people to progress rather than just classifying them. And it seems to me that, that, that this is you know, how, how we approach things. It actually was brought home to me recently. I was at a, a wine tasting in Glasgow with, with my wife and another couple, and uh, bumped into an excellent young uh, primary teacher in one of our primary schools in Western Bartonshire who was there with her husband and another couple. And uh, I spoke to her at the start, and about three quarters of an hour into it or so after we'd had a few glasses of wine there wasn't much spitting out going on I can tell you um, 
I, she said to me, who are you going to on? I said, fine. She said, are you going to buy anything? I said, well, we're just going to try and sort of name our top three or four wines and then the, we'll buy a couple of cases between us, you know? And she said, oh, the four of us are marking each wine out of ten. <laughs> and then we're going to total it up and we'll come to a conclusion. I thought, that's really quite revealing, isn't it? Um, so, it's funny. I, when I um, became a principal teacher, I became a principal teacher of English in 1984, uh, in a, quite a, a school in quite a privileged catchment area. <laughs> it was a comprehensive school, but there was a lot of motivated uh, youngsters from relatively privileged backgrounds. Um, and so the, the marking burden, if you like, was pretty heavy. Um, but I tried to introduce a system there where for classwork, you didn't give a mark or a grade. You simply gave a constructive comment. Because what I always found was you could write half a page of constructive comments, but the one thing that the youngster would go straight to was what mark was it, what grade was it? And they wouldn't actually take on board the message that was, the, that was there which would actually help them. And the interesting thing about it was I got resistance, not from my department, but from pupils and from their parents. And I remember a parents' night where I was talking to this parent about child's doing very well, giving them specific things about how they could improve and what they should do. And parents said, aye, but where is he in the class? I said, well, I don't think that's the important, but I want to know. I said, but you don't know what the class is like. If I tell you that he's, let's say, for example, he's third in the class, that doesn't tell you anything because you don't know how able the class is. It might be that you've got a genius in this class and, and what she wanted to know really was how you would get him from being third in the class to being first in the class. Whereas what the real question is, how can he be better at English? How can he improve his skills? So again, I think revealing about the, the, the way in which in the Scottish psyche, assessment is about rank ordering and about labelling. And I, I feel this, you know, from personal experience as well, if I can relate it to another area of life, um, job interviews. The job interviews are traumatic experiences for a lot of people. And I, when I think back to my own experience, I led, I led a bit of a charmed life. I became an APT, Assistant Principal Teacher of English, at my first go. I, became, I got Principal Teacher at first go. The first interview I got for an Assistant Heads job I got as well. And to be honest, I wasn't interested in feedback for any of those. But when it came to applying for deputies' jobs and head teachers' jobs, then I had a few real failures. And what I wanted to know, I mean, I was interviewed, I think, six times before I got a deputies' job and six or seven times before I got the head's job. And what I wanted to know each time was, what can I do to be better? And sometimes the feedback from head teachers was absolutely disgraceful. It was things like, you came a very close second, I can't, really, uh, I can't really tell you what you can do that's better. And I remember once getting that feedback, and said, well, look, to be honest, that's not really great help to me. I, I said, you know, I've got another interview next week. Could you tell me something that I could do to improve my performance? He said, no, well, to be honest, it came down to personal preference in the end. <laughs> I thought, oh, they liked the successful candidate more than they liked me. Where does it say that in the person specification or the, or the, or, or the criteria for the, for the job application? And I think that that's, that's another example where we want 
I mean, you, if you haven't got a job you, uh, and that you wanted to get because you haven't you have failed at interview or you haven't been successful at interview, you want to know constructively what you can do to improve. Our children deserve that same advice. And that's advice that I give to, to young teachers today. You have a right, you put yourself through a job interview, you have an absolute right to constructive feedback just as a child has a right to constructive feedback on the work that they do. And I feel that quite passionately. So there have been attempts over the years to make, uh, to make assessment in Scotland more constructive. And I remember there's been the development, I first heard the term when I was a student, but it came into its own more in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, of criterion referenced assessment. And there you're assessing things against preset criteria rather than a rank ordering. Although there was a brilliant send-up of that in a, a, a magazine. It was a, a sort of a technical teacher's magazine. And it was when standard grade came in and craft and design and the assessment for that was criterion-led uh, assessment. And what <laughs> the cartoon shows is uh, two teachers, two technical teachers, standing with their clipboards with their criteria on it and in front of them is a coffee table. The coffee table has got three legs on the floor and the fourth leg is sticking straight up in the air. And one's saying to the other, well, it's obvious from the criteria, 75%. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, that can, be, that can go wrong as well. I think what that, that, that showed to me is that when you go to criterion reference assessment, you sometimes can't see the, uh, the wood for the trees. You sometimes can't see the big picture because it's, it's ticky-boxy. So he's done that, he's done that, he's done that. The fact that the coffee table would fall over doesn't come into the, the, the final assessment. So, in summary, I would say that um, the, in Scottish education, we have been grade and target, target obsessed and league table obsessed. And even teachers and head teachers and directors of education who talk about you know, really, they're pretty meaningless uh, league tables. You can bet your bottom dollar that when the results come out, the teachers are looking to see how their department's done in relation to the rest of the school. The head teachers are looking at how the school is done in relation to the rest of the other schools in the authority, and indeed uh, to the comparator schools, and the director is looking at the picture for their own, own authority. So while they are there, and while they, they perform a useful function, I think that they have led us rather than informed us uh, in, uh, too much in the past. So, curriculum for excellence. Is it different? Is it a brave new world? Well, I think potentially it is. For those of you that are not from Scotland, curriculum for excellence is, uh, as I said at the start, a misnomer. It's not really about a, a curriculum in terms of content, which in the past in Scotland, all curricular developments have been led from the top and they have been content-led. And we, teachers have been told what to teach, how to teach, and how to assess it. Curriculum for Excellence tries to get away from that approach. It tries to broaden out learning. It tries to recognize wider achievement and attempts to find a way of bringing together achievement, assessment, wider learning, profiling, reporting, etc., into, into a single whole. That's a very shorthand description. But basically, it 
it, 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 it is a, a change which is about learning and teaching rather than about the curriculum per se. It will involve curricular change, but it is much bigger than a curricular change. And for that reason, I think it's, it's unfortunate. It would have been much better if it had been called Learning for Excellence, because that is really uh, what it's about. And within Curriculum for Excellence, there are a number of questions which are asked. This is the, the document here which covers assessment. It's uh, Curriculum for Excellence, Building the Curriculum 5, a Framework for Assessment. Um, it's quite a big document. There is an executive summary. Like all of the Curriculum for Excellence stuff, it is quite wordy. It's not that user-friendly. And as a result, from that, schools and individual teachers have tried to develop the principles that are contained within that and to come up with their own assessment policies which reflect the broader aims and the ideals of Curriculum for Excellence. And the ideas, the questions that you have to ask yourself about assessment within Curriculum for Excellence is what are we assessing? And for the first time there is an attempt here to assess all aspects of learning and wider achievement in youngsters. And there's a big challenge there, perhaps we'll come to some of that in the, in the questions later on. And there are some exciting methods of, uh, 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 of uh, looking at wider achievement and how you recognise it and how you can actually assess it. Second question is why? Why are we uh, assessing in the first place? And the document makes it clear that, uh, again, the, the, the reasons for it are quite wide-ranging and quite ambitious. And it uses phrases like to ensure breadth challenge and application of learning. So it's not just looking at whether you know something, it's whether you can apply what you know. Because sometimes I think we think that an educated person is somebody who can go into university challenge and answer lots of questions. That's factual knowledge, that's not an educated person. Because there's no evidence there that that very bright student can actually apply uh, what they have learned. It's also when it's asked the question why, it's also, and this is the key thing to me, it's about progress. It's about ensuring progress. Now you see there, going back to what I was saying earlier, that's where you're linking it directly to learning and you're bringing it together there. And it's about wider achievement. When do we assess? The idea and the ideal is that we assess constantly. It's not an end-of-term test. It's not um, a one-off uh, event. It's a process. And the main way in which this has been summed up is uh, through what's become known as assessment is for learning. And it's quite interesting. Assessment is for learning is quite a useful <coughs> phrase. It, it does make the link between assessment and learning. But I actually think it doesn't go far enough. To me, Assessment is a key part of learning. And if we think back to the examples I used earlier about driving tests and uh, job interviews, the assessment that you do both on yourself and the, and the assessment which your peers do of you and the assessment which uh, your instructor or your teacher does is, is a key part of that. And the final question is how we assess, and this is an important one too, because what it says is it's not about the test, it doesn't have to be written down, 
an assessment can be a conversation between a teacher and a pupil, which is one very powerful way of knowing whether they can apply the learning that they have, have, uh, uh, that they have taken on in the, in the previous week or the pre previous month or term. It can be a peer assessment between, not in the way that Miss Johnson applied it in primary seven, but uh, the, the, the peer assessment between youngsters. Very powerfully, it can be self-assessment. Ultimately, if you can get a child to recognise where their own strengths are and where they need to develop, then you're three quarters of the, of the way there. And it, it talks about the importance of the questions that you ask just a little story there. One of the other authors, the other authors, oh, listen to me. Uh, one, of the, one of the authors appearing, I'm beginning to believe my own publicity now. They, um, one of the authors appearing both in the children's strand and in the main uh, strand of this festival, James Robertson, uh, writes both adults' books and children's books. He came out, part of my responsibility is libraries in Western Bartonshire. And uh, we run a, our own uh, literary festival called Booked, which has got a uh, a children's strand and he was in one of our libraries talking to a group of primary seven pupils and I went along to, to hear him and he was talking about what he does for children is he translates uh, classic books into Scots and he, for instance he's, he's done a translation of Roald Dahl's The Twits which he calls The Egypts, very very good, very funny and he was talking to them about the Scots language and he said, <laughs> he said to this group he said, you know, the thing I love about Scots language is the adjectives. The adjectives are brilliant. And he said, the adjectives, a lot of them end IT. He says, for instance, your teacher, maybe on a Friday afternoon, if she's not had a great week, she gets a wee bit crabbit. And he said, and at the end of a hard day at the, at the word processor, I might be feeling a wee bit wabbit. He said, but my favourite word, and I use it a lot in the, twi in the, the, the Egypts, uh, is a word that begins with G and it ends IT and it means somebody that's a wee bit stupid and stupid looking. Any ideas? That's wee boy's hand goes up in the air. Yes, and what is it? So remember, it begins with a G and it ends IT. He said, get. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I have to give great credit, James Robinson. He nearly lost that, actually. He started to laugh. He said, I've asked that question around the country and that's the best answer I've ever heard because what you've pointed out to me is that my question was stupid. I, I should have told you that there were some letters in between the G and the IT and eventually somebody got Glaikit, of course. Uh, so the way that we word questions, how we construct things uh, and making sure that they are appropriate to the, that they are appropriate um, to what it is we're trying to assess, the skill that we're trying to assess very much skills-based and very much looking at, at, at progress. And as I say, it's a genuine attempt to tie up assessment, reporting, profiling, recognising wider achievement, etc. Profiling I've mentioned, there's also a requirement on a youngster to produce a profile at the end of S3, the end of the broad general education. And that can't be a one-off event either. Because that's got to be, the child has ownership of that and they've got to be thinking about their own learning and about what they want to include in that, I would say right from the age of three onwards. So, the other emphasis, the other major emphasis, and this has been missing in the past I think, is an emphasis on literacy, on numeracy and on health and well-being. And I don't think anyone could argue that as a nation we in Scotland have to tackle uh, these three uh, issues. 
So with that constructive uh, uh, learning-based approach, and also a, an emphasis on moderation, so that you've got you, you do have the the, the standard you, you maintain standards. Everything should be assessed against outcomes and experiences, and the emphasis is on the young person becoming more secure in their learning. I like that word because under five to fourteen, there became a phrase E for the level E for the day. You passed your test, and that was it. But being secure in your learning is far more important. I mean, I, again, I relate this to my own experience. I, t I spoke recently at an international event on enterprise education. In Western Bartonshire, we've got some excellent practice on that. But it's not a field that I'm particularly expert in myself. So I get a fantastic briefing from the officer, the uh, quality improvement officer, who had taken the lead on that. It was brilliant, brilliant PowerPoint, which she'd made up for me. But I wasn't happy with my own performance. And the reason I wasn't happy wasn't because of the material, it was because I wasn't secure in my own learning, that I, didn't, I hadn't internalised it properly. So Curriculum for Excellence is about learning and teaching. It's about, and assessment is about restoring the importance of the teacher's judgement. So, for so long, teachers have relied on externally produced materials. Now they're involved in developing the national assessment resource. Uh, they're involved in developing the methods of assessment in a way that hasn't been the case before. So rather than the top-down approach, you've got much more of a, a, an approach from, from the bottom up. And I'm aware I've got about two minutes left, which is just about right. I'm going to finish with a little story. Um, to sum up, though, just before I go on to that, the big question is, is it going to work? And I suppose the question for a lot of people, there's been some publicity about secondary schools not being ready. And, despite, and there's been a misrepresentation of both the EIS and the SSTA, the two main teaching unions' views on this. They sit on the Curriculum for Excellence Management Board with me, and they are entirely behind the principles of Curriculum for Excellence. They're one debate at the moment, the one thing they're unhappy with is the timing of the first batch of exams, which to me is, a, is a, to some extent a side issue. But as I was coming through in the train today, I was actually reading a document which just came into my hands on Friday, um, and it's from our largest secondary school, new secondary school, it was only opened last year, uh, St Peter the Apostle High School, and it's got 1,600 pupils in it. And this is a review of learning and teaching across the whole school. It's based on uh, an excess of 300 uh, classroom observations. And it's got a fantastic section on assessment, which talks about um, the three aspects of assessment. Assessment for learning, assessment as learning, and assessment of learning. And when you read this, it's an individualised approach. They have thought about it very deeply. Individual departments have worked very hard on it. And if I was a parent reading that, it's the sort of school I would want my child to go to because you can be sure not just in the learning and teaching policy but also in the assessment part that the emphasis is, is on individual needs and trying to meet, uh, to meet those needs. Now, it remains to be seen and there are challenges ahead and I'll be happy to take questions on that. But it did strike me that um, it's not only teachers who assess pupils, it's not only pupils who assess pupils, pupils also assess teachers. And I remember one of the least secure moments of my life, one of my worst moments in the classroom. I told you about the, the, the middle class school that I was principal teacher in. I went 
as assistant head teacher to East Bank Academy in Shettleson. Shettleson is officially the most deprived uh, parliamentary constituency in Britain. I arrived there in January. I was in charge of third and fourth year, including third and fourth year discipline. And I had 426 kids in those year groups. And the head teacher, who's still there, Jim DL, great character, said to me, OK, Terry, you're in here, January. I'm going to give you a week with no classes. Go around, get the feel of the place, see how we operate. So I went around, and really impressed. You could tell that kids were very deprived, but within the school, the learning and teaching was sound and discipline was great. And I knew that my first class was going to be a second year class that I'd been told were the class from hell and that particularly the boys were murder. They had chased off a couple of supply teachers the previous term and this sort of thing. So I thought, God, what credibility can I have if I go into this class and I don't, I can't, I can't even control them? So really nervous. So the, the Monday came, period three, managed to get in at the interval, get all the books out. So it was like a crit lesson, all the books out on the desk. And the youngsters come in and they're looking at me, eyeing me up and down, you know, saying, who's this then? We'll soon sort him out, you can see it going through. Anyway, they all come in, sat down, I said, right, okay, 2S, I'm going to read you a story, a short story, and then I want to see a sample of your writing, so you'll get on with some writing. Fine. So we read the story, gave it, and it started, this, and I said, right, I want you to start the writing, told them what they were doing. Everything's quiet. I thought, doddle, what can go wrong? And from the back of the class, I hear this voice. Hey, Baldy, have you got a pencil? I thought, oh, God. There we go. So I said, hey, come here. So, yeah, yeah, you, come here. She goes, what, 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 what? No, done nothing. And I said, what's your name? Sir Richard Gallagher, sir. Well, Richard Gallagher, what do you mean talking to me like that? She goes, wasn't he talking to you? So I looked around the class and Mr. McConaughey, you know, oh really, who were you talking to? And he says, I was talking to Derek Bald, he's sitting in front of me. <laughs> and of course, the first thing I did was look at the register, which I hadn't taken, and there it is, the first name, Bald Derek. <laughs> and then this beatific grin came over young Richard's face, and he said to me, how hey, sir, what made you think I was talking to you? <laughs> Now, I believe that in curriculum, he was never going to be an academic pupil, young Richard, but perhaps under curriculum for excellence, his wider achievement, and in particular, his comic timing, could have been acknowledged under the new assessment system. Thank you very much. That was great, absolutely great. I think you've given a really kind of human face um, to um, Curriculum for Excellence 5. Um, just, I'll just start off with a question and then we'll open it up um, to people. I'll stand up and, and try and do that. Can I just ask you a question? Um, what's your view that um, Curriculum for Excellence could be at risk of being seen as a sort of age 3 to sort of S3, um, so age 14, 15, curriculum, you know, because of the exams, you know, situation, we seem to be, you know, making really good progress with, with what we're doing up to the exams, you know. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important question. I would say that the, 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 there was a risk of that. I'm, not, I'm less concerned about this now. Um, basically, the idea is that it should be a broad general education from 3 to 15, 
the end of S3, and then you enter what's called the senior phase. Now, one of the, the developments that's taken place, in fact, I'm at a meeting tomorrow, which will be following through on some of this, is that um, Scottish Qualification Authority, SQA, have been intimately involved in the curricular developments, the learning and teaching developments, the assessment documents, the documents on reporting uh, at the, the various stages. They are represented, well represented, on the management board and there have been a series of meetings uh, which uh, have basically looked at what they're calling dependencies, which is what, one, what the likes of SQA has to do in order to make the schools and local authorities be able to deliver, what uh, the schools have to do to make sure that the SQA have what they need. And so they are intimately involved in all of that. And there are very strong assurances that the senior phase and the assessment of the senior phase and the certification of the senior phase will follow closely uh, the principles of Curriculum for Excellence. Okay, let's um, open this up to people. If you just want to raise your hand, if you want to ask a question, and then I'll just um, point to you. And then there's a roving mic here that will come to you right down at the very front. And if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, wait for the microphone, and then introduce yourself. And if anybody else can and, uh, put their hand up, and then she'll know where she's going next. Sorry, repeat that. Yep. Hello, I'm Helen McIndoe. I'm a student at Stirling University, so I'm going to be asking you later if I can use some of your quotes in my essays. Um, my question is that, um, as a student, I'm not sure obviously from the experienced teachers, is that we're looking for the hows to assess. And from what I've seen so far out in placement, I think the biggest concern is that the outcomes and experiences will just become a tick box ex exercise. So it's really to get your view on what you think the hows are. I think, um, I think that's a very good question and I think that you have put, uh, that for those of you that are not involved directly in education, the outcomes and experiences are basically quite a complex matrix uh, which charts the progress that youngsters should make through the different levels and it, it looks at skills and it looks at, at things that they should be developing and signs that you look for that they have developed that. Uh, if it does become a very mechanistic thing then I think it will fail. Um, and I think that part of the problem just now is that, a bit like what I was saying about being secure in your own learning, until teachers become secure in, the, in understanding that matrix, then they'll find it difficult to translate that into anything that's not, into something that's not mechanistic. And uh, I think that, the, that, that that is one of the challenges that we, that, that we do face going ahead. The advantage is that I think that there is more freedom uh, within Curriculum for Excellence for teachers and schools to develop their own assessment, their own how, uh, if you like, to apply to that. And um, the other, I think the other strength, one thing that I didn't mention uh, earlier, uh, one great strength in the way that Curriculum for Excellence has been developed has been the amount of collaborative working between teachers, between schools and between local authorities to develop best practice. And I think as people begin to see that and begin to absorb it into their psyche, then hopefully we will get away from uh, the, the, the mechanistic approach. It is a risk though. Any more questions? Just, just there. Gentleman at the back as well. And then after that, the gentleman at the back. You mentioned. Um, Sorry, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Lynn Kent. I'm a teacher, um, and you mentioned about the idea of assessing wider achievement. And I just, I mean, I think that's a big challenge. And I'd be interested to know of 
you know, if you've seen any sort of examples of that or have any ideas how that might be achieved by teachers. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think um, I think it is a, a challenge, and, and it is a um, it does it does require a change in mindset. Um, one of the things that Curriculum for Excellence talks about is the fact that learning of all sorts is valuable, and the I think that the the idea is that up until now, what we have assessed in schools not the skills that we have developed necessarily, because there's a lot of very good practice, but what we have assessed has been a very narrow cross-section of the achievements that youngsters have. So I would hope that through the profiling system, we find ways of recognising... Now, see, I suppose you've got to get away from the idea that everything that's assessed has got to be certificated in some way. You've got to think that there are certain things that at the end of the day we are going to certificate because it's necessary for the transition to the next phase and for universities, etc. They will need to know certain things. But to pretend that that is the totality of a child's learning is very restricted. So I think that's what I've seen are ways in which schools have found ways of capturing the other achievements that youngsters have. And I think the profiling part of it is going to be very important here because that will be encouraging young people to record things that they believe are important to them out with the standard curriculum, if you like, in the traditional sense. Um, I haven't seen a full solution to it yet. I would, be, I would be lying if I were to say that. But I've seen some very good practice in schools, both primary and secondary, of trying to capture uh, this and to say, you know, that is of worth. The difficulty is, of course, and maybe it's not a difficulty, maybe it's a false difficulty, um, in assessing something like wider achievement, you possibly don't need the same rigour of standards that you do elsewhere. But if a youngster has been capped for under-16 Scotland football team, is there really no way of acknowledging that as part of his formal education? If a child, uh, if a girl has, uh, or a boy for that matter, has, uh, sings in the National Youth Choir of Scotland, is there not a way of capturing that and of saying, if you want a, an assessment in the round of that young person, that is a very important part of, of, of their life? And I've seen the uh, good examples of ways of, of, of schools trying to capture that, trying to celebrate it through displays in schools. And it's maybe about getting people to understand that these things are in some ways as important to some individuals they may be more important than what they get in their whatever replaces standard grade <coughs> maths. There's the chap at the back. Does anybody else I could point to? Oh, good evening. My name's Mike Ash, and many years ago I had a role like yours in England. And um, I've, been, I've been very encouraged, and, and I, I sense in the room quite inspired by what you said today. But if I could be slightly cynical, back in the 80s in England, we developed uh, self-assessment for students mm -hmm. and vocational courses and so on, which we as educationalists were really committed to. Unfortunately, they rather fell by the wayside because they failed to gain credibility mainly with employers, but often with, with parents and the wider community generally. And then we went into, you know, if it moves, test it, which, we, which we've all seen and um, had to suffer for many years since. Have you been able to reflect on those experiences across the border and do you feel that what you're producing now will be able to have that sustainability and credibility that uh, previous experiments failed? 
thank you. Uh, the, I think um, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I, I do think that the uh, that the there is a danger there as well. Um, one positive thing is that uh, parents are represented on the Curriculum for Excellence Management Board and parents uh, and parents' bodies in Scotland have been broadly supportive of the direction that Curriculum for Excellence is taking. Um, employers is an interesting one because if you listen to what employers are saying to us now, they are saying that they want the rounded individual, they want the literate child, but they, they, they also want the, the, the or the not child, but young person. They want a young person who can communicate orally, who is confident, who has got the qualities that Curriculum for Excellence is trying to uh, to develop. Now, it might come to the, at the end of the day that they say, I but we also want uh, A, B, C, D. But I do think that what uh, the, the Curriculum for Excellence is delivering what employers say they want. I think a big challenge is going to be the universities. Now, universities are represented on the management board. And um, you mentioned that you're a student teacher. I think there's no doubt that the, that the, the university, the education faculties in universities are very much on board with Curriculum for Excellence. I'm less convinced that the other faculties, and particularly the traditional uh, ones with high uh, high tariff entry like medicine, veterinary medicine, dentistry, uh, that they are tied into it. And yet, if you look at what Curriculum for Excellence is, is looking to produce in their young people, it's what you would want in your doctor, in your vet, in your dentist. It's rounded individuals, not simple, simply academics. So I think employers and parents at the moment appear to be on board. Um, I think a, a greater challenge could still be the universities, although they are saying, they are making some of the right noises, whether it's, it's yet embedded in the universities, I'm less convinced. The time will tell, perhaps. Okay, any more questions? Just here. Can you see? Hi there, I'm Jan Lumsden from Carmadeen Primary School, and I'm going to go back to the wider achievement thing, because I really do think that we're good in schools at celebrating children's work in their widest sense, but what I don't think we're good at is using it to further their education and valuing it. And what about those children who come to school and they don't have any achievements in the widest sense? How do we create opportunities for them to achieve in the wider sense? That's a big, big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that some of the most imaginative work is going on uh, in that field at the moment. I think it's a big, it's a big challenge. Um, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example from, one, uh, uh, from a, a small primary school in Western Bartonshire, which serves an area of very significant deprivation and has a, a lot of children that you would, would come into the category that you're talking about. Um, and the, the head teacher there appeared in uh, Times Educational Supplement. She basically ripped up the traditional curriculum and she reorganised her school, not on age terms, but in two houses, P1 to uh, 4, P5 to 7, and put her teachers into teams of, te uh, of teachers. Very imaginative approach, uh, which really brought a lot of dividends. But what she also did was she, every child in the school is on one of nine school committees. And those committees have a constitution, they have a budget, 
They have a work stream, things like an eco committee, things like uh, uh, the, the, there's a committee on fundraising, there's a charities committee, various things like that. And every child is facilitated by an adult in the school, not necessarily a teacher, but every child is on that committee. Now I think that is a wonderful way of actually drawing in children uh, to uh, achieve something when perhaps they might, might not be. They also use cooperative learning methods in, uh, in the committee work. So they have cooperative committees so that youngsters have to participate uh, because of that. So I think that's a good example. She also, in a wonderful move, every child and adult in the school learnt a musical instrument. And I attended the most fantastic concert at Christmas. They'd only been learning for eight weeks. And the head teacher was sitting there with her flute. She could only play four notes, but they played a concert to an enthusiastic audience of, uh, of parents and others. I have to say, as I arrived in the school, the larger-than-life secretary, Gwen, signalled to me, came over, Terry, we present for you. And I looked at it, it was a pair of earplugs. So, <laughs> But, so I think that there are ways in which schools and looking, and I've got other examples too, but I think it's a that's a particularly strong example where the way they're achieved, but by reorganising the way that you run your school, you involve greater numbers of youngsters in, in, in a range of activities that they wouldn't normally be drawn to. Okay. I think we've got time perhaps just for one more question. Well, then I'll just ask you a question. Yeah. Um, you know, back to, to something that you were saying, is the curriculum for excellence is, is changing, perhaps, the way in which we teach, rather than it being content-led. And that in terms of assessment for learning, when you've mentioned cooperative um, learning, we've got critical skills programmes are, are around, which is a collaborative um, teaching methods. Um, how do you think that's going to influence assessment because for example taking the primary sector we've just said goodbye in June to the 5 to 14 tests um, but they didn't necessarily um, give any kind of heedway to um, these kind of teaching methods so do you have anything any thoughts about um, in primary and secondary schools just the different ways that the children will be be learning the approaches because that has to reflect on assessment methods I think um, the National Assessment Resource is going to be the big uh, thing. One of the interesting things for, uh, for me with the, the development of the National Assessment Resource, which again for those of you that are not familiar with it, um, is, is an attempt to get a huge online bank of assessments which will basically allow you to tailor assessments to the particular uh, topic that you're teaching and it will run right the way through. Now it has, as I mentioned earlier, been developed from the bottom up and we found that when, when we asked, uh, when I asked our schools to, they were looking for what they were calling pre-NAR materials, in other words the early uh, examples, People, the schools were tripping over themselves to come forward to volunteer to develop that. So I think that the, I'm quite encouraged by the fact that the 5 to 14 I think generally was seen as having outlived its usefulness and that people are looking to develop um, other methods and I think that that will grow and it, it definitely is growing and is, is, is growing all the time um, and we haven't yet seen the final picture of it and I think that how that develops 
uh, especially into the secondary school and how we how we manage the transition from primary and secondary and also the transition from the broad general education to the senior phase will be crucial there and it's got whatever methods we use to assess have got to aid that process because there are flaws in the transitions process at the moment. Okay. I think that's um, drawing the end to, to the session which I think has been um, fascinating and very, <coughs> uh, very insightful and I've loved the humour and the sense of fun that, and the human face that, that you've put on to this, as you say, perhaps could be seen as a dry subject. But I think um, it's time for us to um, thank you very much for this and we will do it in the normal way. Thank you. There's always my one. Own, <laughs> my own self-assessment. Um, oh, I don't know. You always think of things that, that you... I suppose in these circumstances, you're always uh, critical in the sense that you think of things that you fail to say. Um, one good thing was you did laugh at the right times and you, di you didn't laugh when I wasn't meaning to be funny. So I suppose that's, a, that, that's some sort of assessment. Thank you. Thank you very much. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.